Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David, your host as always. Great show today. We have Dan of Node Labs, which does micropropagation, which basically is like a strained car wash. Uh, we get very deep into the science of how he can clean a clone that has pesticides or other things wrong with it, how he can store that, a strained vault, and how he's really helping all these cultivators all over California. It's a great story, super science -y. You're gonna learn a lot about cannabis. I learned a ton, you're gonna learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Dan, thanks for being here, man. Great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks for having me over. Yeah, let's start with an easy one. What's Node Labs? So Node Labs is a plant tissue culture lab. Uh, we're focusing on cannabis. Uh, and really, we saw that there was a big need for uh, clean stock. Uh, you know, people were suffering for all kinds of diseases and pathogens um, when going to propagate their own plants. Um, and so we decided, hey, the nursery space hasn't been touched too much yet. Let's figure a way out a way to improve that and really assist the cultivators um you know it's definitely more in the background it's a b2b business it doesn't show up much on instagram mm -hmm. um but really we wanted to be able to work and support people in the industry who have put the time and the sweat in um to make some of these awesome varieties and to deliver you know awesome product to market Got it. Well, let's just back up a little bit, unpack that a little bit. So I'm a grower and I have my own strains, right, that I'm growing consistently. They come to you at what point? Generally, it's when there's a problem. Um, they've noticed that their plant isn't producing as it should. It's not rooting as it should. So they're really missing a bunch of their production goals. Um, so it's a bummer to, to go in and, and uh when things are not going well, but it is great to be able to offer them help. Um, so people will bring us a sick plant, we diagnose it and say, hey, it's you know sick with X, so we'll treat it a specific way to remedy it. So we'll be presented with a sick plant, and I like to phrase it that we're kind of like rehab or surgeons, we're definitely plant doctors. So we get like a- like plant a, doctors. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a lot of fun, you know, nursing all these sick plants back to full health. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get some material. It's not doing what it should be. And we can correct course so that it produces the same flower every time. Um, it has the same growth structure and really, uh, it performs as it did in its first generation, uh, more like a seed with super vigorous growth. Um, it's not GMO. We're not, you know, throwing anything with radiation or crazy weird. We're not modifying the plant in any way. We're just correcting it back so it can be at a hundred percent full health. And this has big, big economic ramifications, right? Like, Oh, absolutely. Can, can you give an example or something like someone that saved X amount of dollars or more yield or whatever? Yeah. I mean, the, um, really common one that we've seen is fusarium, um, where people will cut a tray of a hundred clones and they'll get maybe 30 successfully to root out of it. Um, that's one of the first things that we saw is people were just missing their production numbers. They'd need, you know, uh, 500 plants to put into production they cut 500 clones or even 600 and they really have 200 so they're really missing the mark when it comes to producing um, 
the volume of flour, so just the production goals, as well as the quality of flour deteriorates um, with every additional stress that happens to the plant. Um, so you can get away with traditional cloning for a while, but after about five or six generations, you may see that the um, desirable characteristics fade, and that is because of the stress that you're uh, inducing to the plant with every generation of cloning. And five or six generations could be as short as like a couple years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have worked with material that people have had for 20 plus years, which is great to bring it back to how it used to look. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, particularly um, facilities have not had to be entirely clean. Um, so whenever there's exposed wood, there can be just, you know, baked in issues to the facility that will absolutely get into your plants quickly. So if I heard you right, you can effectively double yield for some cultivators? Is that oh, right? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it really is, you know, if you're expecting to put 100 plants in the ground and only you get 50, it's really hard to just hit reset and say, we're just not going to grow anything until we have the 100. So there has been this issue where people are kind of racing against the clock saying, hey, we know this plant has issues. Maybe it's just doing 70 or 80 percent of what it should. And we don't have as many plants, but we can't afford to stop growing. Um, so that's when we come in and, you know, it takes a couple months. It's about a three or four month process to correct. But when we deliver people their uh, plant material back, it's 100% full health. It will grow super vigorously. It will produce, um, you know, flour that um, has all the viable uh, and desirable characteristics of that particular variety. And is there a certain size cultivator that makes more sense for this? Or So we've actually... Um, you know, I was surprised. It, it's been small and large cultivators that need this help. Um, some guys have built their brand around a specific strain. Um, and so they go, hey, here's 20 different varieties. Uh, we need all 20 so that we can do this menu deliberately over the next couple of years. Uh, and then there's other folks who go, hey, I just have one or two, but it's really important to me and really important to our brand. This particular OG is our OG and we need to be able to do it in perpetuity. So you know, I really take a bit of pride in being able to work with some of the larger companies yeah. and offer the same service to the smaller companies who like it might have more of an impact for because when they miss their production goals, they don't have the weight of the big guys. Sure. They, they need to be able to keep producing cannabis. And from a revenue stream, it's great to have sort of different tiers of customers, right? Way more sustainable than having a couple big guys and one oh, of them churns. It's a nightmare, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And personally, um, I really enjoy working with these brands. Like I like geeking out on weed. It's yeah. really cool to be able to take a look under the hood and if they bring us two or three strains. It's great. Like it's fine. If they bring us 20, great. It's awesome. Um, but really seeing these cultivators who've spent time getting to know a specific plant for 10 or 15 years and then help them um, get it back to what it used to look like is very exciting for me as someone who has um, been into cannabis for a little while. Mm -hmm. Do the really, really big guys do this themselves? You know, like canopy growth or acreage or, you know, how do they? How do they I know that there has been an effort to create these in-house um, by a lot of the big players. And it certainly is valuable enough that they should, that should be a goal of mm. theirs. Um, where it becomes really challenging is that cannabis is a particularly unique plant in culture. It doesn't work as other plants do in culture. So it's not as easy as hiring someone with 25, 30 years experience and then two or three months later, um, you know, you have success. Uh, it definitely took us a very long time to figure out 
what makes this plant tick and how to do this successful not just once but repeatedly and scientifically um, so a lot of these guys are trying to do it in-house um, and we have gotten calls from a couple of them saying like hey can we actually use your uh, secret sauce um, because it is such a challenge um, but absolutely there will be a, a lot of folks looking to gain the benefits of tissue culture and what we found, which I was very surprised, is that the services portion, uh, taking people's genetics and cleaning them up, is an overwhelming, like uh, overwhelming uh, demand for people um, who have coveted varieties that they want to be able to keep around. Because mm -hmm. last time we talked, there were two kind of distinct revenue streams, right? There were that, and then you also just sell clones, right? Yeah. Once once we've cleaned up the genetics, we have a public menu of things that are commonly available um, that you could just buy clones of. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very surprised. Um, you know, I think one of the unique things about California, it has been very pro-small cannabis business. You look at Massachusetts and it's, hey, you need five or 10 million bucks in the bank just to participate. Mm -hmm. Vertically integrated, you got to own from the seed to the sale all the way through. That's one company. Mm -hmm. In California, there's thousands of small cannabis businesses who are trying to make it work. Um, so initially I thought, hey, we're just going to sell a million clones. We're going to clean up four or five varieties and that's the only thing we're going to produce. It turns out our customers don't care if we have Sunset Sherbert or Girl Scout cookie or wedding cake. They actually have already selected the material that they want. They know how to treat it to get um, the proper yield per square foot that they want. Mm -hmm. um, so that was very much a surprise to me. And, you know, being in startup mode, you have to talk to your customer a lot and hear about what they want and be able to make a left or a right when you need to. And at this point, um, the, the cleaning aspect has been uh, a great foot in the door for people saying, hey, we want our genetics cleaned. And now that they're cleaned, actually, can you bring us 10,000 or 10,000 a week? Mm -hmm. um, so it really has opened a lot of doors having this service that big guys and small guys can use. Got it. And how does the pricing model work? Um, it's 5000 per strain. Um, there's separate fees for banking. You get a dozen plants back at the end. They're all um, individually um, in um, uh, containers. So we know that until we deliver it to you, it's pathogen-free. We provide pathogen reports as well, showing that it was dirty when it came in and clean uh, when we deliver it. Right. Um, and at that point, you know, sometimes people say, hey, can you bank this for a year? And we have separate fees for banking. Mm -hmm. um, but that is so banking like you keep the strain make sure it's clean and oh yeah, yeah. We, we we have a vault of about 130 something varieties right now um one of the biggest concerns of our customers was like hey are you going to steal our genetics well that's the philo story yeah. that was actually my next question right yeah how do you how do you walk that line so um you know we have certain documentation that we provide a material transfer agreement that we say hey we have no rights to breeding we have no rights to cultivation we are performing a service at which point we return all the material back to you um at one point i was trying to come up with some like secret in the middle of the night decoder that will give you a code and only you know when the moon is full you can like read it back yeah yeah exactly um but we just hey we just have uh, people say plant one plant two don't tell us what it is it's helpful to know its growth tendencies indica sativa does it like does it um enjoy lots of light or does it not respond well to lots of light but 
you know, people have been spending a lot of time developing these varieties. And the last thing that we want to do is use it nefariously. No interest in that. So call it plant one, two, three, four. I don't care. Um, our plants also are not particularly viable out of the lab. Um, we've also built, um, tracking software so we know exactly what was performed on every single initiation and every single cut that we did but it's been the most peace of mind for our customers to just have it be a bit of a black box <clears throat> just label the plants one two three four and call it a day got it um going back to the philo story do you know if they had those kind of agreements in place like we won't steal your shit my understanding is that there was <clears throat> they they misled their um, customers in a couple different ways. Yeah. One was by saying, hey, um, we're not going to do breeding. We're not going to do tissue culture. And then putting out a big video saying, hey, we're both doing breeding and tissue mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. so there was definitely some deception going on there. Um, I did not work with Phylos. Um, you know, our, our company has not worked with Phylos. So I'm not sure what agreements yeah. were in place. Um, but I certainly know that their um, people feel as though they were misled about their intention. Oh, they were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They 100 percent were. Has that controversy helped or hurt your business? Um, I don't think it's hurt our business. Um, it definitely has made it, um, you know, a conversation that we all go into with a little bit more information, which I think is helpful. Um, you know, everyone being on the same page about the concerns of the industry is very useful um, for for us to be able to sit around a table and say, hey, these are the issues and this is where it could go wrong um, allows us to get out in front of that um, and create a system um, so that it can't happen in the future. Um, it certainly hasn't discouraged our business. Um, a lot of people need our services, but it has um, prompted the conversation a lot faster where people go, hey, you know, this is what I was presented before. Let's have that talk, um, which is totally fine. Um, so it really hasn't impacted our business too much. So this is a highly technical side of the cannabis industry, right? I mean, Absolutely. it's not just like having a brand, which everybody else is trying to do no, at the moment. Like, did you have a background in life sciences or biology or anything like that? Not particularly. Um, I mean, I, I moved to California to work uh, in the cannabis industry because I felt, you know, there was this big movement going on a couple of years ago. If I didn't move to California, I was going to miss out. I was just going to miss the boat and be left behind. Um, I spent some time in tech um, where, you know, I had a startup um, to help musicians meet each other. That's a really cool idea, actually, the group tones idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Not that I ever executed on it, but I had that idea a few years ago. It's cool that you did it. Like, yeah, it was, explain um, it a little bit. Yeah, it was basically... Um, you know, uh, a map with musicians on it, um, with a search feature. So you could type New York guitar players, find all the players and then message them to start a band to do a recording session. Um, so it was, you know, I was a cello player who was riding the bus to meet people on Craigslist. It was awful. Um, you're a cello player. Yeah. I Are spend, you good? Um, I'm okay. You know, uh, I started pretty early in my life. Um, was in a band for a couple of years and many orchestras. Um, but yeah, Craigslist is just, you know, everyone's using the same tool for lots and lots of functions, whether or not it's meeting people or selling stuff or community outreach. So I felt as though there should be a platform, um, for musicians to, you know, uh, navigate that a little more successfully. And that's really where I got my chops up in this startup space, you know, with fundraising, business development, managing a team, product development. Um, 
but music, um, you know, at that time was super tough. I had some really, really amazing um, advisors where, you know, Spotify was going and buying their company for a couple hundred million bucks, but they were still concerned about their future. Um, so, you know, it wasn't until I helped um, collage.com with this Series A um, that I said, you know what, I think my skill set is best used outside of music. Mm. Um, I've developed some skills let's try getting at this cannabis space. Um, and so that's where my background more in business development and fundraising was a really, really strong fit for cannabis at the time. Um, you know, two, three years ago, um, it looked very, very different. Uh, and people were not as willing to have cannabis meetings. Um, so I think that particular aspect of my background was, you know, a very, very strong asset to the founding team. Um, so, you know, cutting my teeth in Boston in the music space was definitely um, very, very difficult, but it gave me um, a set of skills that is fits in um, with the current, you know, cannabis climate very, very well. Mm -hmm. And your first foray was sort of bridging those two industries, right? The Chalice Festival. Yeah, I was uh, I was down in L.A. where I was the uh, director of operations for the Chalice Festival, which for me was checking all the right boxes. So oh, my God. It was such a good time. Um, it was still um, Prop 215, so it was all medical, um, just on the cusp of legalization. So it was a lot of, you know, working with vendors. There's about 370, 380 vendors that I needed them to fill out paperwork to be at the festival for. And there was a lot of coaching them through, hey, I'm here to help you make money. I'm here to help you make sales. We just need to get some information from you. This isn't scary. We're all on the same team. Yep. Um, so it was really bridging that gap between, you know, the production side of putting on a festival and the intense cannabis culture that's like, I'm not giving you my address. Why do you want to know my name? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, totally. um, Chalice Festival was such a blast. I, I hope at some point it's able to come back because... How many were there? How many times did you do it? Um, I did it two years in a row, 2016, oh. 2017. And why did it go away? Uh, the regulations became... Um, very, very difficult to make 2018 work. Um, regulations came out um, for events like a week or two before the festival. It was just not going to work wow, well. that's so crazy. At the end of the day, it was just canceled. Um, but maybe the new laws around sort of having events in cannabis can help that. Or like, in a lot of ways, you paved the way for like outside lands and grasslands that just happened. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, 30,000 people, close to 400 vendors, wow. you know, Ice Cube, Cypress Hill. Like, yeah. it was a absolute blast. Where did you do it? Uh, I was down in San Bernardino. Okay. Yeah. Um, limited number of venues that were open to it. Sure. And my hope is that, you know, we can get into some real space um, some time soon so it's not you know cannabis people out in the desert in 112 degree heat right. just totally dying while they're trying to smoke weed right but like a convention center with air conditioning would yeah. be super nice yeah that'd be um, really cool so i think there's like the cow be, palace or something oh yeah. Here, yeah uh i i dream about getting it like the staples center at some point yeah, that's dope it'll be a couple years that's dope maybe the new ram stadium yeah in exactly that'd be exactly really cool so you do the Chalice Festival. Obviously, you learn a ton about the cannabis industry through working with that. What's the next step? How do you get into this? 
So at the Chalice Festival, um, you know, I was down in L.A. working at the Hitman coffee shop every day, which was ground zero for Chalice. Um, Chris Levitt, uh, who is my co-founder on the project, at that time, he was not my co-founder. He was someone who, with a tissue culture background, who had interest in cannabis and saw the applications. Um, so I connected him with um, Evan Tenenbaum, who... Um, I had known for a couple years actually from when I was working on group tones and he was at SoundCloud. I introduced them just to have some friendly conversations about the space to see what might come out of it. Um, and they started talking more and more like, Hey, maybe we should like turn this into a real thing. There's definitely practical applications of tissue culture and cannabis. What would it take to get this thing off the ground? So I was down at the chalice festival and able to have conversations with these vendors about, Hey, you know, what do you do with your strains? Do you have concerns about long-term storage? Is it performing the same as 10 years ago? Have you ever lost a strain? So I was able to do some really um, specific market research when I was there, uh, talking to all these vendors. Um, it wasn't until the Chalice Festival wrapped up that we started putting more energy into it. And the team really came together and said, hey, we should really put some time and energy into getting this thing off the ground. Um, this seems like it's very, very needed. Um, and we have a few of the pieces to get this uh, to get this moving pretty quickly. Um, so at first, I was just going to be an advisor to help, um, you know, with the fundraising and get it pitch deck ready and, you know, get uh, enough of the market demand demonstrated to warrant having some meetings. Um, and it wasn't until um, Evan asked me to come on board full time um, that I saw myself being there for a while. Um, Evan was employee number eight at Ease. So when he invited me to be CEO of the company and was like, this is like real, this is like a real and we, we need you on board full time. I couldn't hesitate. Like yeah. I knew the decision was made. I'm I'm going to be doing this for the next several years. That's cool. I think that's one of your interesting advantages is the team is incredibly well connected. I mean, Evan and his partner Felipe started Rise, know everyone. Like hard to quantify what that value is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if it was just me and Chris, a couple of guys from the East Coast trying to get a cannabis company going here in California, uh, we would not have the speed that we have had. Um, you know, Evan was um, employee number eight at Ease and then started a distribution company um, with uh, Felipe Ricalde, who, you know, also had a bunch of experience both on the um, regulation side as well as the distribution side. Mm -hmm. um, so working with those guys. Who was just a crazy visionary and like spend some time with Felipe and oh, yes. you'll like understand what 20 years from now looks like. Yes, in he, he definitely is not thinking two or three steps ahead. He's yeah thinking eight or 10 steps ahead. Yeah. It is amazing to be around yeah. and it could be a little exhausting, but also amazing to be around. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I try to live in two or three steps ahead, yeah. but definitely hang out in eight or 10 steps totally. uh, occasionally. I like that. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting to be able to look at the landscape and go, man, this is like upcoming and these guys have enough visibility into what has happened and where we're headed that this is real this isn't someone you know reading the new york times and then deciding um hey this is where i think cannabis is going these are guys who have who are in it and have been in it been doing it yeah yeah so they're yeah. just um Without those guys, we would not have been able to get this thing off the ground with the speed that we were. Yeah. Um, so it's been phenomenal working with them. Uh, and I'm very, very excited to continue to be able to have a strong team to look at, you know, 
the steps ahead and where the industry's headed knowing that they have the real experience to back it up yeah um, this isn't anecdotal this is based on years of experience for um, several of us at this point. Yeah. So in traditional ag, companies like yours, Monsanto, Driscoll, they're seen kind of with a negative connotation in a lot of senses. How similar are you to those companies or do you want to be and how do you avoid that controversy? Yeah. um, I really would prefer to be more of a Driscoll's. To me, Monsanto, um, you know, outside of their very sketchy, not moral practices, they're like a supply company. They sell equipment and and things to start your plants, but they don't care about what you produce. Um, Driscoll's to me is a, sets a much better example of, they make berries, they develop berries, they want their farmers to produce berries, and they oversee the quality control throughout the whole process. We are squarely focused on cannabis. This is something that we really, you know, are very, very passionate about and very, very dedicated to. Um, So for me, the idea of, you know, selling media, selling tissue culture media is not interesting. What is interesting is being able to help these brands that, you know, may have come from um, the unregulated uh, market really establish and keep their value in the changing ecosystem that moves so fast. Um, So it's been really interesting to look at these different parallels. um, And I would much prefer to be a Driscoll's where, you know, we can help deliver um, flour to market for some of these folks and help them navigate a lot of the issues that can come from large scale farming. But it definitely, um, there's only a handful of models in this country for tissue culture labs that are doing it really well. Um, Driscoll's I'd put in that category. There's a a big citrus group out of Florida that does the same thing. I mean, avocados and bananas and all kinds of stuff are made from tissue culture. Um, Just generally, these these companies are more in the background. And that's... um, Seemingly, those companies are not established in cannabis yet. There isn't those really um, big guys who are producing tons of plants for growers around the country, Mm -hmm. obviously based on the laws in place, but also based on the maturity of the industry. Yeah, we were talking about before we started how increasingly micropropagation is not in the U.S., right? It's, It's elsewhere. Why is that and kind of what are the differences there? Yeah, um, most tissue culture labs are outside of the U.S. because of the cost of labor. Um, It's in Southeast Asia and India and the Philippines and other places where, you know, to get people to do, you know, small work under a laminar flow hood, to get a staff of 60, it's just, you know, um, it's hard to get that done in California. Um, So there was a big migration in the late 80s, early 90s, where most of the tissue culture labs left the U.S. and went to these other... um, went to these other countries where you could just produce a lot more for a lot less. Mm -hmm. So the landscape is pretty wide open here. Um, Granted, you know, if you want orchids, you know, the tissue culture work is happening in other countries and then those plant starts get shipped internationally. And that is, I believe where this is all headed. Um, There is going to be international import and export of plant starts. How long until it's THC? Probably a while. Hemp is seemingly going to be the first um, domino to fall when it comes to, you know, uh, plant tissue culture for cannabis mirroring plant tissue culture for other ag. And what does that mean for scaling your business? Like, is cannabis a big enough margin that you can afford that labor? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, no, it's um, fortunately it's a very high value crop. Yeah. Um, if we were doing citrus or hops, it would be very, very different. But the price per clone, particularly for clean, pathogen-free, verified uh, genetics clone, um, the market really hasn't seen them yet. Uh, and there's such intense demand here in California. A lot of them were. Uh, forward-looking um, cultivators, you know, are saying, hey, if I miss 20% a quarter, it's really substantial. Yeah. How do we make sure to capture everything that we need to, to be able to survive? So if it's an extra dollar or two per clone, but on the back end, they get, you know, they make sure that they're getting the extra 20, 50, 100 pounds that they need to, it pays for itself really quickly. Got it. What kind of traction is projected? Like how big can this business be? It's um, it's overwhelming sometimes, um, particularly when you start looking at hemp. On the THC side, California is absolutely massive. There's several distinct markets that could warrant their own tissue culture lab, but we want to make sure to move very, very deliberately, uh, deliberately, and not bite off more than we can chew. Um, you know, there's distinct markets in Sacramento, Oakland, L.A., Monterey, Salinas, Santa Barbara not even counting Humboldt and all that. So on the THC side, incredible, incredible demand. And that's been our biggest challenge is um, learning how to say no to customers because they might be too big for what we can provide today. So it's a fun challenge to be able to... That's a good problem to have. It is a good problem to have. Absolutely. Um, And then you start looking at some of the opportunities in hemp. You know, next year, Colorado needs 100 million plants. Mm. Kentucky needs 100 million plants. Mm. And then all of a sudden... You know, um, I want to be cautious to move deliberately and not just take what we've built and just make it 10 times bigger. There are going to be elements that you want to change. And again, on that, you know, focusing on the hemp side, um, regional centers would be great because there is interstate commerce now allowed. Mm -hmm. So that's really opened a lot of doors for us just in the last six, eight weeks. Um, And what's so fascinating to me about the space it's like we're all playing this game of risk with the big map of the U.S. and you decide how you want to play it. Um, so when it comes to, you know, in one state providing services uh, in California, you can provide similar services in Massachusetts or other distinct THC markets. But you need to rethink how you approach the hemp side because it is so much bigger and interstate commerce is allowed. Um, but the hemp space for me is... is um, particularly fascinating because it's growing so quick and people are trying to produce hemp in regions that historically they have not. Um, So I'm seeing in Kentucky and other places in the Southeast, they're planting genetics um, that are meant for, you know, the Northwest. So people are planting cherry wine um, Mm. and expecting it to produce well. Mm. Um, And there just aren't a ton of good genetics for these distinct regions. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been... Um, really interesting to see all the stuff develop like, you know, in real time in front of me. Is the process for hemp propagation largely the same as THC? Yes, correct. Um, Our unique uh, process uh, does work for hemp as well as THC cannabis. And how about the diversity of strains in hemp? Um, That's something I'm still learning a lot about. Um, It seems like there's, you know, if you were to carve out 
the U.S. into, you know, the Northeast, the Southeast, the Midwest, the West Coast, um, there's only about five or six strains that work well in those specific regions. Um, and then when you start to get into the more pointed questions, like, great, what autoflower strains work in Kentucky? You're going to find little to none. Um, so that's a big challenge um, for people in Maine who want to grow hemp, for people in Nevada who want to grow hemp. There is just a big hailstorm that absolutely destroyed tons of farmers crops mm-hmm. so there's certainly um not the the breadth of varieties to choose from that you have on the thc side that will increase as time goes on there's been this um, big hemp flower market that has exploded for just high quality finished hemp um so i'm really excited about more and more varieties coming online and i don't think um I think the rules are pretty set with cannabis. People don't just want to consume the same type of cannabis every day. People want to be able to go to the store or, um, you know, the delivery service and be able to choose the flavor of the week or the flavor of the month. So I get very excited about um, looking at the future uh, and seeing, hey, there's going to be, we're just starting to get going on the hemp flower side. It really, you know, people haven't been able to grow hemp you know, out in the open in these places. So there's going to be a lot more effort towards making sure what they're growing is the right product. Mm-hmm. I think you might have an interesting perspective. I, I've read um, that up to like 80% of cannabis in California has some kind of pesticides yeah. or some yeah. mold or something. Like how accurate is that? I mean, you would know better than most, I think. Yeah. Um, Steep Hill did some... Um, published some data on this uh, a year or two ago where they found that 86% of the cannabis clones that they tested had at least one pesticide. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And this is, again, you know, this stuff has been in basements and it's, you know, it hasn't had the attention um, uh, of other crops where you can, you know, fill in your notebook and keep records. You know, 20 years ago, you wouldn't want to be caught dead with records of your growing practices. Um, But they're incredibly common. And there are specific uh, problems in each region. In California, the big one recently is hop latent virus, where you'll be growing a plant and think it's um, doing just fine. Week five or six into flower, it doesn't look like it should. And it's really uh, very, very late in the process to be able to pull that plant or even correct it. Um, it's also transmitted mechanically. So, you know, um, all these clone swaps where, you know, you have breeders getting together and trading clones is actually really, really dirtying the market. Um, mm. So we found it's um, incredibly rare to find clean material. Most of the people who do have totally clean operations start from seeds, run it for a couple years, and then reset. So it's very, very difficult for some of the um, brands to be able to, you know, deliver the same product over years and years. Um, A lot of these pathogens, you know, are fungal. They spread as spores throughout the facility or they're mechanically transmitted like hop latent. So you need a one blade per clone mother. You cannot be switching blades. So given that you're supposed to be like this resource and this bank and sort of a lot of trust for cultivators, how does your insurance policy work? <laughs> we have, uh, we have uh, some insurance policies um, in place against like lost revenue. And I mean, we're also in uh, Sonoma County, so fires are the issues for me. Yeah. So we do have a second facility where we have backup copies of everything. Got because it. if something were to happen, we need to know that we have the material to, to, to get it back. Is it 
particularly more expensive than other cultivators or other people that touch the plant? Um, I don't have as much experience with um, the concerns of um, people who hang a bunch of lights. Um, you know, I, I mean, definitely on the plant side, but not from like the insurance yeah. side. Yeah. Um, I imagine it might be a wash because they're, you know, in some cases working with, um, you know, extractors are working with volatile chemicals. Um, you know, cultivators are hanging a bunch of very high powered lights that could be a fire hazard. So it might be a wash, um, but definitely we are, ourselves need to keep an insurance policy so that we don't lose anyone's genetics yeah. because that's, you know, um, there is a lot of trust and we need to make sure that we're being very thorough. Um, and if heaven forbid something was to happen with fires in Santa Rosa, we need to know that it would obviously be devastating, but we have copies of everything mm-hmm. um, that are under lock and key and it's a vault. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that's um, part of the realities of, of being where we are in Northern California. How do you think about security, both physical and cybersecurity? Like you have an incredible amount of valuable data um, yeah. as well as just physical plants, right? Yeah, we, um, we built a... Uh, software program uh, for internal tracking. Um, There's not a lot on the market, um, so we know exactly what happened to every plant from its origin, from was delivered. We're very, very thorough with our data tracking of each plant. You know, each stem that comes into the lab is, comes into the lab is counted and signed off um, by the person who um, delivers it, which is often, you know, the distribution service from our client. Um, So we know exactly how many stems, how many nodes, we can trace it from the beginning of the process to the end of the process. There really um, isn't much off the shelf that we could use. A lot of the um, tracking software is more, you know, in regards to cannabis has been for cultivators to make sure that like, you know, they're yielding as they should or the performance um, based stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's more for internal, Hey, which plant yielded better or where did we have loss? Um, but we, you know, um, we developed our own, um, currently it's barcode. It's going to be switching to RFID because data tracking is such an intense part of the, um, technician's job there. It's very, very important that we know the history of, of each and every plant in the lab. So you've learned an incredible amount in a pretty limited period of time. I mean, you've only been at this, what, a couple years, something like that. Yeah. We, um, we got the lab built May 26th of last year. Got it. How educated is the industry on this type of stuff? Like do cultivators and other, or is there a lot of education you have to do? Um, Initially, education was huge. Um, You know, when I first landed in California, the first six months were just education. Um, More and more people are seeking us um, because they have a very specific need. They have problems. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, where it's... um, it's cool to meet these guys. I wish we were meeting them under better circumstances. Better circumstances yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so some of these, you know, these are really, really um, big, well-established folks um, who basically, you know, have done a little bit of reading about tissue culture, may have even priced out what it takes to build a tissue culture lab in-house. But it's just such an additional uh burden on what they're doing which is hanging more lights growing more pot and liability right yeah yeah um and there's no um this is really really undeveloped territory a lot of the um accessible 
papers on plant tissue culture for cannabis are just straight not repeatable. Mm. So people have often burned three to six months trying to repeat what they've seen as science on this stuff, and it just doesn't work. Um, so initially, the education was a huge component. Uh, people said, hey, does plant tissue culture even work for cannabis? Which is, you know, a, a hard argument to, to yeah. butt up against. Um, these days, a lot of people are coming and saying, hey, we know we need tissue culture. What's delivery time? Or what is turnaround? Or like, um, you know, do you do merit stem dissection? Or do you no do nodal dissection? So the education of... Explain the, that a little bit. Yeah, so um, based on... Um, the donor material, you can basically bring it into the lab, um, bring it into test tubes, into culture um, a different way. If it's surface stuff like powdery mildew, um, you know, maybe some bugs, you can do a specific type of propagation, a nodal, um, nodal propagation, which is, it just grows faster and it's much easier on our end. Meristem dissection is basically... You're taking um, a part of the plant that is not connected to the vascular system, so it doesn't have uh, the stress, the trauma, and the disease of the donor material. So that's we do meristem only. Um, the, it's been too um, difficult to find clean material, which is what you need for nodal propagation. But interesting that it's called node labs. Absolutely. The uh, <laughs> yeah. The um, technically we need a node is what we initiate into culture. The apical meristem. Um, but you know, yeah, apical meristem labs a little, <laughs> little, uh, little long for sure. Um, oh, that's funny. Um, so this is a pretty capital intensive business. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You've raised one point seven. Yep. I think you said. Today we've done one point seven. And you're raising another two to three right now. Yeah, we're doing an expansion round right now, um, really to keep up with the demand. Um, the services portion is great. We had our first profitable month, which is great. Like a little over twelve months in to be like, hey, we like made money this month. Yeah. Um, but really scaling up to meet demand is the biggest challenge. Um, and right now there's so many customers. Um, it has been a learning experience to get to the point to say no, because I definitely want to be able to say yes to these guys. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they need a quarter million plants annually, half a million plants annually. So in three or four customers, I could be sold out for the next couple of years. So it really has been um, a process to discover who is our ideal customer and who can we say yes to and who do we have to check in with in three to six months. Have you been constrained by capital or this is by design, how much you've raised so far? It's been by design. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I've seen other people in the space raise a ton of money. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I want to make sure that like this... Front range, for example. Yeah, front right? range has raised yeah. a ton of money. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, um, that's definitely required at some point. But... Um, we want to make sure that our science is sound and as efficient as possible before we go, okay, here is a, a base that we can build upon. Um, because it seems like the biggest issue is scaling. That is us, front range, other folks in the space. You can get it done a couple times. Now, how do we do that thousands and thousands of times in a super efficient manner? And that's where we've developed um, some specific um ip that will allow us to scale very efficiently um but there's you know there's been um 
not pressure, uh, it's not the right word, um, but there's been very strong interest in people to say, hey, you should really blow this out of the water as quickly as possible. And I just want to make sure that we move very, very deliberately um, as we go forward. Um, but this is really, you know, the round is so we can increase our production. Um, we've, um, you know, uh, protected our IP um, so that we feel comfortable moving forward in a very efficient uh manner scaling this process so the last tranche of 750 was done all internally which is incredible that your previous investors want to do that is you think this round will be similar or are you looking for strategic outside who, who um, would you like to invest? certainly open to strategic at this point um right now we're having a lot of interest from um people who are you know life sciences biotech you know um Institutional investors, maybe not from their fund, but from them personally, um, who are saying, hey, there is no Driscoll's of cannabis. You guys seem to be on the right track. Um, you know, at what point do you guys need a real big infusion? Um, and this is, you know, two years ago, it was very, very difficult to get meetings with these folks. And now they're very much um, interested in us and getting us to the cocktail mixers and yeah. all that kind of As stuff. As they should be. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly agree with that. Yeah. Um, oh, but I mean, you alone, the opportunity is just massive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, particularly in hemp, the way you described it. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's not a lot of, um, you know, plant science companies that are 40, 50 people strong who are covering cannabis. Mm -hmm. We are not 40 or 50 people strong, mm -hmm. but it's obvious that that is going to be necessary here in the next couple of years. Um, I had the opportunity to go to a... Um, facility in um, Hayward that does crop improvement <clears throat> and it's like 10,000 square feet of greenhouse molecular biology lab for 50 tissue culture lab 10,000 square feet and it's like damn this is a plant science company that just at this site has like 150 200 employees so that really got my creative juices going saying like yeah we're like 16 17 people today but eventually this is gonna you know you're gonna need an office with just you know 30 40 people front of house in addition to the 100 scientists you got behind the curtain got it want to switch gears talk about a little bit of fun questions here sure. obviously cannabis is your business but what kind of consumer are you when you're not working uh, uh, of cannabis. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was like a, a dab guy for okay. a very long time. I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. This is too much. Yeah. Um, definitely chalice festival was peak dab time. Um, and it was a great time to have a golf cart and be driving the vendors around. Yeah, throwing that's me cool. the latest and greatest. It was so cool. So that's, um, part of the industry that I pay attention to, but these days it's just flower. Um, I've been getting, uh, very very interested in the breeder space and super interested in the genetic space um because you know again people are saying hey we don't want your girl scout cookie we want your or, or your sunset sherbet we're gonna bring you xj13 or whatever it is um so it's obvious to me that people put a lot of value and a lot of brands put a lot of value in being able to produce a consistent crop that their audience wants and that's where you know the I don't drink much, but to me, I hope it parallels um, this microbrewery kind of thing that's happening. This the craft beer scene where, um, you know, a, a craft beer company will have three or four staples and then rotate six or eight new varieties every year. That is ideal for me. Um, you know, to get very specific, I grew up on the East Coast, so I was used to the um, gassier terpenes, a lot of the chems. Um, 
and the west coast just has such a crazy variety it's yeah. overwhelming are you a daily, a weekly, a weekend? I'm a daily user, daily. for yeah. sure. Yeah. I find most people in this industry, like there still is that tinge. Like you're very business focused, which we talked about before. There's like this culture of ultra weedy people that are high all day, which obviously you can't be. You're running a business, right? Yeah. But but in the evening, it's like you said you don't drink very much. I don't drink very much. Like this is an increasingly thing, which I just think is so cool that that's not the first topic of conversation anymore. Oh, not at all. But it used to be. Yeah. It really I mean, used to be. I got to say, I was a little disappointed when I moved out here and I found that Evan and Felipe, like, don't really blaze. Yeah. I was definitely, oh, I thought we were going to, like, yeah. ah. But, like, you know, you get over that pretty quickly. And there's enough stuff that we're interested in. It's like, I, that's just... Um, not something I need to, it's just not a focus of mine anymore. Sure. Um, but it is, you know, from a, like a weed nerd perspective, it's fun to be able to look at all these different jars uh, and have people in some case present me finished flower of like, hey, this came from your tissue culture plants. Uh -huh. um, I, I just love geeking out on that stuff. And um, the different smells and the range of smells to me is just amazing. Yeah, um, it's fun. Yeah, it's so fun. I just love sitting there uh, and going through a bunch of jars when I can. How do you stay informed? What do you read in the morning? Um, I hate to say it, but Instagram is like an amazing place. And it's not that I just stay on Instagram, but there's a couple accounts that point me to the right places online. Shout them out. What, um, what do you follow? I mean, I'm definitely in some Reddit groups on hemp flowers and uh, cannabis cultivation, a couple different tiers. Um, you know, there's a couple people online that I, on Instagram, really need to pay attention to. Um, shoot, there's one guy that's covering everything going on with phylos and everything going on with breeding super, super well. Okay. Um, so it really is interesting to see everyone, um, you know, kind of gravitate around these accounts that just do a really great job of publishing what's happening in the industry all over the place. I found it very, you know, there's a lot of, um, like, news wires going out there's a lot of pr attention but you really have to dig underneath that um there's so many announcements every day yeah it's definitely like its own machine that it can make it harder to um get through the get through all that fluff yeah and it really is individuals for me evan felipe my buddy justin at dsg labs is amazing um just from being super well connected in the industry and having um being a conduit for information and that to me is um still very very valuable to have those old school connections and to be identified as someone who has been interested in this before this latest rush mm -hmm. um but it's very it's a challenge to, you know, to stay up to date. And I find that, you know, whether it's an Instagram account or specific people that I'm friends with that I check in once a week just to chat about the space, um, it just, I haven't found a newsletter or a website that covers it to the same degree with the same um, level of visibility that some of these folks have who have been operators. Well, maybe you can share some of those accounts. We'll post them oh, for, yeah, for yeah, everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, like get, that, I'll get that on the yeah. back end. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, favorite book that you've ever gifted? 
uh, non-cannabis, anything. I mean, it would probably be the botany of desire. Okay. And that is this book by Michael Pollan. Um, you know, I've been into plants for a while. I, I worked in cut flowers for a while and I've traveled some parts of the country to look at very specific trees that are great historic trees. Um, the botany of desire basically talks about, um, this idea of coevolution between plants and people. Um, he uses the apple, the tulip and cannabis and the potato to basically demonstrate, Hey, this plant by providing something that humans want, whether it's intoxication or control, um, it ensures it's, um, it's history. I'm sorry. It ensures it's future. It's going to be around for a while. Um, so the cannabis section is super interesting. The apple section for me is also fascinating mm. because the apple wasn't sweet until it got to North America. Mm. Um, it was just used for cider production. So there does seem to be this uh, response where, you know, the apple is going to ensure that it's going to be around for a while because it's meeting a basic human desire. Same thing with cannabis. Did they uh, increase the sugar level? Is that how that works? Or? I think it was just geographic um, conditions. Got it. But it was, you know, uh, Johnny Appleseed was for cider. It wasn't because anyone cared about eating the apple. Yeah. So when you read the expression, the apple of my eye from 200 years ago, it's not sweet thing it's like a bad thing it's like a you would not eat an apple because it oh. was too bitter um so there's this really fascinating co-evolution and michael pollan's a, a brilliant guy i think i love that actually, his name's pollan oh yeah that's hilarious yeah he crushes it um i think he's berkeley actually okay. um but he's looked at like you know a, a lot of um intersections of agriculture and people in a lot of his books um he did a great thing on netflix as well but that was um you know whether or not you know, you agree with it. It's a really interesting lens to look at, you know, this system of plants and people and, you know, us participating in nature, which you forget about sometimes because it's office buildings and Ubers. But there is this, you know, response that's happening between people and the world around us and examining it in a co-evolution kind of way is um, just a great exercise to go through, even if you disagree with it. So because you're musically inclined, what's on your current playlist? What do you listen to? <laughs> oh, man. Um, these days I'm doing a lot of, I haven't broken out of my Brazilian funk phase. Um, still stuck on still stuck there. Um, Spotify does a great job, but I've been drinking their Kool-Aid for a bunch of years. Yeah. So I go through their Discover Weekly plays as a matter of habit. Um, I grew up like as a fish kid okay. as well. I've been traveling to, like, around the country. And yep. Um, it's not what I like to boast about anymore, <laughs> um, but I've been to like way too many shows, yeah. like way too many shows. Um, yeah, I generally like music that is more, um, you know, not lyrically driven, but I, I, I'm trying to always digest more. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, San Francisco has a really amazing, uh, music scene history and you know this is again my personal interest in music and cannabis the chalice festival was just an amazing intersection of those two things for me um i hope there's more events like that so seeing the outside lands very cool yeah being able to like go buy weed and then smoke it at the music festival is like man san francisco is ahead of its time yeah always yeah, in a lot of ways, San Francisco is like living in the future. It's really, really cool. In a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's a great place to live. Yep, for sure. Uh, well, this has been an awesome interview. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thank I you feel for like having we've me. learned a ton. It's like real cannabis science. Yes, um, absolutely. And congratulations from what you've built. It's really, really cool. And it uh, sounds like you're doing big things. It's going to be big. Um, 
here's your chance to promote whatever you want. Are you hiring for something? You know, how can the audience help you? Well, I will say, um, you know, one thing that we are starting to look more at is, um, we've started working with a few breeders, um, to be able to, you know, help them get their varieties to the market as flower, um, as well as, you know, maybe some deals around licensing. So there's a few that we've decided to work with again, looking, trying to look ahead and saying, Hey, people don't care about sunset sherbet, girl scout cookie. Who are these people providing genetics to these companies who want to put a mark in the ground? So that's where, um, I'm particularly interested um, and I really want to help these guys keep their place. I don't think they're going anywhere. The, you know, the Sherbinskis and all these people are established. They're going to be around for a while. So really helping um, specific breeders, um, giving them a platform to enter the regulated market is something that's become very important to me. I worry about the cannabis culture. Um, losing all these really cool elements that were around for so long. Yeah. We all going to smoke Bud Light, you know? Yeah. I'm not, I don't think that's right. I hope not. Yeah. I don't think that's what the consumer wants as much as it's easier for the business to just say, Hey, we're going to produce one thing. That's not interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a lot of these breeders have been established for years and years and they're not going anywhere. Um, so really, you know, not only keeping them on a pedestal, but help, helping them elevate their position. Um, you know, one of these guys that we're working with is super excited about being able to um, deliver flour to market that is his and with his little logo on it and all that stuff. It's very, very exciting. It's a lot of pride there. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Um, people have been spent years and years working on this stuff. And I really want to help them not only stay in the industry and navigate all these bumps and hurdles that you know are more challenging to people who have been breeding for 10 years as opposed to fundraising and all the business stuff so that's where personally i like to focus a lot of my attention is helping bring in these really really awesome people and making it less intimidating and scary um it is a bummer when you know people get very discouraged by some of their investor meetings that's going to happen but that's where i really try to um you know, reassure them that like, Hey, this really is a marathon. This is not going to happen overnight. You're going to be here to stay. Just let's have, um, you know, let's be persistent on this. And that's, um, you know, one area that I, I take a lot of pride in is making it a soft landing pad for people who can, you know, be a little more tentative around suits. Dope. Dan, it's been great, man. Thank you so Thank much you so for joining much, us. Thanks for the education. Absolutely. Thank you.